Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Living Wisely. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. How much money would you need to make in a year in order to be happy? Think about it for a moment. What would your number be? How much would be enough? These are questions that the New York Times set out to answer a few years ago when they partnered with schools and some other organizations for a series of studies designed to see if there was a relationship between money and happiness. What did they find? Well, there is a measurable connection between money and happiness in America. Not surprisingly, people with a comfortable standard of living are happier than those living in poverty. However, there is a catch. The series of studies launched by the New York Times found that additional income did not buy additional happiness once the comfortable standard of living was met. The magic number that defines this comfortable standard of living in America was found to be around $75,000 a year. Of course, depending on where you live, state taxes, cost of living, etc. Using Gallup poll data, collected from almost half a million Americans, researchers found that higher household incomes were associated with better moods on a daily basis. But the beneficial effects of money tapered off entirely after the $75,000 mark. The second study conducted by the paper sought to prove whether life satisfaction would double if individuals made twice as much money as they do now. Interestingly and quite surprisingly, it was discovered that only 9% of those who were surveyed that made twice as much money as they did before, only 9% were twice as happy. Thus, the inverse would be true as well. That means 91% of income earners were not happier when their income doubled. Perhaps this is why the Wall Street Journal wrote this truth about money several years ago, another newspaper, but of course focusing on the market segment of income and financial advice. Wall Street Journal wrote, money is an article which may be used as a universal passport everywhere except heaven, and as a universal provider for everything except happiness. So what did the Times, the New York Times, extensive research projects find was the secret to being content with the amount of money we earn? Well, stay tuned 
And I'll tell you that secret at the end of our time today. We're continuing our series in the book of Proverbs called Living Wisely. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Proverbs chapter 11. And to pull out the sermon notes that are in the worship folder you received when you came in this morning. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring one to you so that you can have a copy of the scriptures in front of you. We want you to be able to follow along. We've got plenty of Bibles we can share. Our theme verse for this series in Proverbs on wisdom has been Proverbs 9.10. And if you haven't already, I want to encourage you to underline it or highlight it in your Bible. Uh, it's, it's simply this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. I think what Solomon is saying here is that wisdom is worth gaining, but also I think he's saying it begins with a relationship with the Lord through his son, Jesus Christ. Now we've been learning over the last few weeks that wisdom is the skillful application of God's word to every area of life for God's glory and our good. Growing in wisdom is a byproduct of a growing walk with the Lord. If you claim to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you should want to grow deeper in your walk with Him by studying His Word, and by doing so, you will gain His wisdom. You will also find yourself in some very good company. For example, did you know that one of the few compliments given out to people in the Scriptures is that of wisdom. Joseph in Genesis, Moses, Joshua, and David were all commended for their walk with the Lord and the wisdom they gained from walking with him. Throughout this series, Solomon will tell us one simple truth in several different ways. Wisdom reaps blessings, and foolishness reaps cursing. The book of Proverbs states on no uncertain terms that we can become wiser by learning from fools, or we can be fools while others learn from us. So which will it be for you? One topic that... We all want the Lord's blessing on, and we all need the Lord's wisdom for is the topic of money. And Solomon has a lot to say about money in the book of Proverbs. Thus, our big idea is this this morning. Uh, what you do with money reveals whether you love the Lord or just love money. Solomon is going to tell us several truths today, well, at least five, that we're going to look at as we skip around to some different chapters and verses in the book of Proverbs. But I think if we boil it all down to what he's saying, we can boil it down to this. What you do with money reveals whether you love the Lord or you just love money. The powerful pull that money has on the affections of the heart was no surprise to Jesus. Many of you know that he said in the Sermon on the Mount, for where your treasure is, your heart will also be. This is probably why money is one of the most talked about topics in the Bible and one of the most common idols that we struggle with. 
Solomon answers at least two questions I can think of on money and the Proverbs we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, The first being, what are the blessings that come from managing money wisely? And what are the dangers of holding on to money too tightly? The first thing we need to do is to, uh, when it comes to money, is to see it the way God sees it. And So if you would look at Proverbs 11, verse 4, Solomon writes, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Here's the first point on your outline. The first truth I think that Proverbs is telling us about money is this. Money is morally and spiritually neutral. It's morally and spiritually neutral. The day of wrath that you see there in Proverbs 11.4 is a reference to the day the Lord Jesus Christ will return to judge unrepentant sinners on earth. The sage is destroying the often-held myth that wealth can offer security and protection from all things, including God. Just as the wealthy can be tempted to find their security in money, the poor can be tempted to believe money would solve all their problems. But neither is true. Proverbs warns the wealthy not to lean on money, and it warns the poor not to long for more money. Money is morally and spiritually neutral. Having lots of money doesn't make someone wicked, just like being poor doesn't make someone righteous. Throughout Proverbs, in fact, and the rest of the Bible, we would see that, we can see if we did a survey of the scriptures, that there are godly wealthy people and ungodly wealthy people. There are godly poor people and ungodly poor people. You see, money doesn't determine someone's character. Instead, their character determines how they use or gain money. I think these myths cause people to blame money for things that money didn't do. Thus, I think the implication is that money doesn't ruin people's lives or cause them to become greedy. Sin does that. Sin always originates in the heart. Money is spiritually and morally neutral. Just like fire, sex, or alcohol. It's people abusing money and misusing it that is sinful. There was a man who worked all his life and saved as much as he could. And he loved money more than anything. Just before he died, he said to his wife, when I die, I want you to take all my money and to put it in my casket with me so I can take it with me to the afterlife. So his wife promised that she would do that. And at his funeral, just before the funeral home director closed the casket, his wife put a box inside next to her husband's lifeless body. The funeral home staff then shut the casket and rolled it out to the hearse for the graveside service. The wife's friend was there to support her at the funeral and asked her, you weren't foolish enough to put all that money in there with him like he asked. And the wife responded, I cannot lie. I did promise to put all that money in the casket with him. So you actually did that? 
I sure did, said the wife. I wrote him a check. <laughs> you see, in the second half of the verse, I want you to notice in Proverbs 11:4, it says that righteousness delivers from wrath. It's a contrasting proverb, connected by the conjunction, but. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, besides, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Jesus also said in the Sermon on the Mount, it's in Matthew chapter 5, we must be perfect, just as our Heavenly Father is perfect, in order to get into the kingdom of heaven. Obviously, Jesus said that to provoke a question, well, how can anybody be perfect? Nobody is. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The only solution to this problem is receiving the righteousness of God through repentance and faith in his son, Jesus Christ. So when we look at Proverbs, and it says in Proverbs 11:4, but righteousness delivers from death, it raises the question, but even Solomon knew there's a problem when it comes to sin and, and people and God and how God judges sin. But even Solomon knew before Jesus showed up on earth there has to be some righteousness to be delivered from the consequences of death. Jesus was that solution. Romans chapter 3 tells us that anyone who repents of their sin and by faith trusts in Christ alone for their salvation receives the righteousness of God through Christ. In exchange for his righteousness, Jesus took on our sinfulness and died a death that we should have died on the cross. Thus, no one can buy their way out of hell or buy their way into heaven. Only Jesus can buy our ticket to heaven, and he did so with the currency of his blood. So how do we apply this? How can we be doers of the word after looking at Proverbs 11, verse 4? Well, here's a, a one application that comes to mind. Perhaps the Spirit will give you another one. Uh, the one that comes to mind for me is that we need to trust in Christ's righteousness only for salvation. Now, many of you listening to me today here in this room or online have been to church, going to church for years, and you've heard the gospel hundreds, if not thousands of times. And so this application might seem as bland to you as rice milk. However, I want to challenge you to take inventory of your heart and to ask yourself this question honestly. Are you really trusting in Christ's righteousness? Or are you still trying to earn your salvation? One way you can discern what you really believe about salvation is by assessing what you believe you deserve. Gospel Coalition blogger Trevin Wax says it better than I ever could. He once wrote this, Hell is full of people who think they deserve heaven. And heaven is full of people who know they deserve hell. So what do you think you deserve? It's righteousness. It delivers from death. Riches can't. And the only way we can get the righteousness we need is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ.
So what you do with money reveals whether you love the Lord or just love money. The next thing we have to do when it comes to money is we have to give back to the Lord what is his. Turn with me, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, Solomon writes, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the firstfruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. Here's number two in your outline. The second truth that Solomon tells us about money is that the Lord deserves our best worship through giving first. The Lord deserves our best worship through giving first. You might remember in the first message in this series, I broke down the chapters of Proverbs into sections. And the first nine chapters is the first section, and it contains exhortations that Solomon was giving to his son or his sons. Thus, most of the first nine chapters start with my son or my sons. So it's father speaking to child, passing down wisdom to help the child succeed in life. And in this chapter, Solomon, after he does, in chapter one and two, chapters one and two, he, he makes the case for gaining wisdom. And then in chapter three, he begins to get specific and target certain topic areas. Well, in verses nine and 10 of chapter three, he turns his spotlight on money. So he says, honor the Lord with your wealth. Now, for us living in a Western culture, as we look at that through the lens of our culture, because everybody does, they look at the scriptures through the lens of the world they're living in, the culture tells us that everything we have was earned by us, and thus everything we have is owned by us. But on the contrary, the scriptures teach that if we were able to earn an income, it's because the Lord gave us breath, he gave us health, he gave us strength, gave us a job, and gave us the talents to keep a job. In the Lord's economy, he owns everything, and we are stewards entrusted with the privilege of managing what's his. For these reasons, the Lord expects us to give back a portion of what we earn as an act of worship and thanksgiving to him. So, he tells his son, Solomon tells his son, honor the Lord with your wealth. And Well, how do we do that? Well, we do so with the first fruits of our produce. The term first fruits was used several times in the scriptures to refer to the first 10% of our gross income. It's a reference to the spiritual discipline of tithing. Tithe, the word, actually comes from the Hebrew maser. It means one-tenth or 10%. In other words, we honor the Lord by putting him at the top of our budget, not the bottom. He should get the first cut, not our leftovers. And throughout history, the Lord has not only expected his people to sing in worship, but to give as well. And I think this is because, first of all, the Lord wants our hearts in worship, and he knows that wherever our treasure is, our hearts are there, as I referenced earlier. I think it's also because giving reminds us that everything we have belongs to the Lord. And 
I think the Lord also wants us to give back to him because the Lord's church doesn't run on air. It needs resources to do the Lord's work. And so, to incentivize this giving back to the Lord through worship, Solomon tells his son, speaking probably from his own experience, and the Lord will bless you. He, he will reward this. In verse 10, look at your Bible. It says, then your barns will be filled with plenty. The sage tells his son that if, and he's telling us that if we honor the Lord with the money he's given us, he will make sure that we have what we need. Note the word plenty, if you're using the ESV translation. Not, not all that we want, but what we need. There's a difference. And then sometimes your vats will be overflowing. This means that sometimes the Lord will bless us with more than what we need. Some of you, and even I, can testify to seasons where I had more than what I needed and was able to give more away. From time to time, the Lord will bless us with abundance. It's not a promise, or it's not always. What, remember, Proverbs are not promises. They're principles that describe generalities. And so Solomon's just saying, hey, the Lord will make sure you have what you need, and sometimes he'll give abundantly to you so you have more than what you need if you honor him with your wealth. So the application, I think, is obvious. We need to make sure we put the Lord first in our budget. The Lord, and what this means is that the Lord wants our giving to determine our standard of living. Instead of our standard of living determining our giving. Unfortunately, there are many Christians in America who established their standard of living first. I want this house. I want two new cars. I want a camper. Oh, I think I'll throw in a boat. I want a country club membership. I want this and this and this and this and this. And then what's left over? Oh, yeah, we need to give to the Lord. Oh, man. We're not going to be able to do the 10%. There's only 2% left. Guess we'll have to give that to the Lord because we've already locked up all the other money and other things. Instead, what I think the scriptures teach on this subject is that if you are not able to make generous giving a part of your worship because of your standard of living, the Lord would say, then something needs to change. And it's not him. He would say, you're living beyond your means. And I can promise you this from personal experience, your walk with the Lord will be better. Living on 90% of your income in the will of God than living on 95 to 100% of your income out of the will of God. So put the Lord first in your budget. What you do with money reveals whether you love the Lord or whether you just love money. Next, if you would, look at Proverbs 13. We get a third principle on money from Proverbs 13, verse 11. Solomon writes, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Here's number three in your outline. The wise get rich slow, 
because fools want to get rich quick. The wise get rich slow because fools want to get rich quick. If you've ever played the lottery, gambled, or thought about joining a pyramid scheme in order to get rich quick, then you need to heed the warnings given here in Proverbs 13.11 and Proverbs 28, verse 20. Just a couple of years ago, I'm not sure if you knew this or not, but the statistics on the lottery are shocking. Just a couple of years ago, Americans spent $70.15 billion on lottery tickets. This is shocking and sad because the odds of winning a Mega Millions or Powerball lottery are only 1 in 302 million. That's 2,000 times less likely than being killed by lightning or an earthquake. To make matters worse, about one-third of the people who win the lottery eventually declare bankruptcy. Every time a lottery ticket holder gets a big payday, it is usually tantamount to clearing an untrained pilot for takeoff because they don't know how to manage the money they just won. One of the reasons I don't like to play the lottery is I'm afraid I might win. Numerous reports are out there, and I read several magazine and newspaper articles and studies last night on the internet that I found on lottery winners. There have even been books published chronicling what happens to lottery winners after they get their big windfall. Most of them are worse off than before they had won all that money. Some crumble under the stress of friends and relatives and family members demanding handouts. Some receive death threats and demands for ransom, while others have actually been murdered for their millions. I read one story where an in-law, I think it was a sister-in-law, killed a lottery winner because that lottery winner wouldn't give the sister-in-law the money that she asked for. Most lose all their money because they never changed the spending habits that made them poor in the first place. And very few live happily ever after. Another reason I don't play the lottery is that doing so tells the Lord what he's given me is not enough. And I just don't feel comfortable telling the Lord that. So, application, avoid get-rich-quick schemes. Even the ones that don't sound like a get-rich-quick scheme. Those that are pioneering such schemes are very crafty. You've heard the old saying, if it sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. 
Well, fools sign up for every giveaway or sweepstakes they see because they think, I might win. I'm going to be one of the 200,000 people that sign up for this thing. But wise men and women? No, the real winner is the company harvesting all those mailing addresses. They're willing to give away one car, one boat, one camper, one little trip, because it is just pocket change to the money they will make getting all those mailing addresses so they can send you junk mail for the next several years. Instead, read the fine print. And ask yourself, who's really benefiting from this giveaway, this drawing, or this sweepstakes? The antidote, I think, to impulsive financial decisions is contentment with what the Lord has provided for you. And if you can learn that, you will have a much better life. So avoid get-rich-quick schemes. Uh, next, uh, look at uh, Proverbs 11. Just turn back a couple pages in your Bible. Proverbs 11, 24 to 25. Proverbs 11, verses 24 to 25. Solomon writes, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Here's number four in your outline. Givers get richer, but hoarders get poorer and poorer. Givers get richer, but hoarders get poorer and poorer. Proverbs 11.24 is another couplet that compares the person who is generous with the one who is selfish. It unravels the worldly myth that selfishness is the only way to find satisfaction in life. Take it from the man who knows, Solomon himself. He later wrote in Ecclesiastes that, uh, in fact, it's Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, if you want to jot that down uh, for future reference, you can look it up later. But in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 10 and 11, Solomon says that he... He pursued every pleasure he could find on earth, tried it out, and concluded at the end of his life, it was vanity. It was like chasing wind. It wasn't satisfying or fulfilling. Sex, he had plenty of it. Alcohol, yep, had that. Money, he had that. Material possessions, yep, he had that. Solomon did it all in Ecclesiastes, and he writes about it. And in the end, says, I wasn't satisfied. It wasn't worth it. Interestingly, that same New York Times article I mentioned earlier uh, launched another study uh, in several cities in which, um, I'm sorry, it, it launched a study in which it cites another behavioral study <laughs> Let me try this again. I'm getting tongue-tied. The same New York Times article that I mentioned in my introduction had several studies in it. One of them cites a behavioral study that was done across several countries in which participants were given a $20 bill and a slip of paper in an envelope. 
half the people received a slip of paper that told them to spend the $20 on themselves by the end of the day. The other half were told to spend the $20 on someone else by the end of the day. In follow-up interviews with the participants, they were asked whether they were happier spending money on themselves or on others. And hands down, in countries ranging from Canada to India to South Africa and America, people were happier spending money on others rather than themselves. I find it interesting that modern research is proving that the Lord has hardwired us to be generous. But our sin nature keeps us from enjoying generosity the way we were made to. So, application for Proverbs 11, 24 to 25, ask the Lord who you can bless. If you have the faith and the guts to pray this prayer, I guarantee you the Lord will show you a need that he wants you to meet. And if you take part in being used by the Lord to meet that need, according to Solomon, you will find your cup being filled as well. So it begs the question, what has the Lord blessed you with that he might want you to share with others? Or to give away to someone else? Or, or what might the Lord want you to get rid of to bless someone else or to stop doing so that you can be generous to others? So ask the Lord who you can bless because those that give get richer, but those who hoard and hoard things for themselves get poorer and poorer. Finally, Let's look at Proverbs 21, verse 20, our last proverb for today. In chapter 21, verse 20, Solomon writes this. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Here's number five, the final point in your outline. The wise spend less than they earn, so they can save more than the rest. The wise spend less than they earn, so they can save more than the rest. This is another contrasting proverb where the first half sets up one person and describes them. It's connected by the conjunction, but, and then the second person that's described is the opposite of the first. Solomon juxtaposes the wise steward who saves against the fool who spends all that he has. Precious treasure and oil back then would be the equivalent of currency that we would use today. And so what the proverb is saying is that the wise man, the wise woman, has a house in which they've set aside some things for the future. They have saved but the fool has a house that's empty because they've used everything that they have. Thus, the wise man thinks about the future, whereas the fool only thinks about today. Short-term versus long-term thinking. Sadly, 
This is still a problem in America. I read several studies last night about this topic as well. Many financial experts and prognosticators thought that after the recession of 2008, Americans would change their spending habits and save more after there was a record number of bankruptcies. But recent surveys indicate nothing has changed. 57% of Americans have less than $1,000 in their savings account. And 39% have no savings at all. Of course, one biblical example of a good saver is Joseph from the book of Genesis. I know that Dave Ramsey's material and Crown Financial Ministries material references Joseph from Genesis. He instructed the Egyptians to save one-fifth of their harvest during the plentiful years so that the country could survive when seven years of famine were coming in the future. That story's in Genesis 41, if you want to read more about it. So, application. Practice the discipline of saving. The heart behind saving is a heart of self-denial. Although self-denial is difficult in a Western culture that bombards us with so many marketing messages telling us we've got to have this and we have to have that to feel good and be happy and you deserve a break today and so on and so forth. However, with the Lord's help, it's possible to deny ourselves. Jesus modeled it, and by his grace and by his spirit, we can do it. Another important piece to have in your budget besides what you will give to the Lord is what you will contribute to savings each month. Some people even have two savings accounts, one for emergencies and one for long-term goals that's untouchable. Financial experts recommend following the 50-30-20 rule of thumb, 50%, no more than 50% of your income going to uh, necessities, 30% towards discretionary items, and then 20% going towards savings. So practice the discipline of saving. Well, uh, before we close, I wanted to make sure I mentioned something that I've been thinking about as we wade into this series, and that is how is Jesus the hero instead of Solomon? One of the mistakes that expositors and Bible students often make when studying Proverbs is somehow Solomon becomes the hero of the book because of his wisdom. However, I think Solomon's life choices disqualify him from such an honor. Instead, I think there are two reasons, at least, that Jesus is the hero, especially when it comes to money. First of all, Jesus lived a life free from the love of money and stewarded the resources the Father gave him. And Jesus modeled generosity for us by giving the most generous gift that anyone could give. He gave himself. So Jesus is the hero of the book of Proverbs. Well, do you remember that New York Times study I mentioned at the beginning of our time together this morning? There was one more study that they commissioned that's worth mentioning before we conclude our time today. The Times teamed up with a developmental psychologist and gave toddlers the equivalent of 
gold. Goldfish, that is. Goldfish crackers. Judging from the beaming faces that these toddlers had, they were elated by their sudden windfall and inheritance. But there was something that made these toddlers even happier as they conducted the study, and that was giving away their treats to their new friend, a puppet named Monkey. The conclusion by the developmental psychologists and experts was simply this. Maximizing our happiness is not about maximizing our goldfish. It's about what we do with what we've got, which might mean indulging less so that we can give others the opportunity to indulge more. Need I say I love it when secular research proves what God already knows and the Bible has already said. What you do with money reveals whether you love the Lord or whether you just love money. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, you know as well as I do that this topic is one that can stir up emotions for reasons that only you understand, Lord. Humans have various emotions that are very strong when it comes to money. Lord, I just want to pray, first of all, that you would help those today that are blessed financially to steward well what you've entrusted to them. If there are changes that they need to make in their standard of living or what they give back to you, Please, Lord, give them wisdom and lead them by your spirit on how to do that. Lord, I also want to pray for those that are maybe struggling financially. It could be because of poor choices they've made, or it could be because of things that are out of their control, like medical problems or health issues and sudden loss of a job. Father, please would you give wisdom on how to honor you in that struggle. And Lord, would you also provide. We know you own the cattle on a thousand hills, and we know that nothing is impossible for you. Would you please provide relief from debt that maybe was not incurred by poor judgment, or provide a job or raise if maybe living expenses have gone up that they couldn't control. Would you please provide, Lord? Father, finally, would you help us as a church to avoid the love of money? Instead, Lord, would you work in our lives and our hearts so that we would always love you first? Protect us, Lord, please, from loving and idolizing money. Because your word has told us it doesn't end well if we do. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. 
Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Carrie Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.